Morning, everybody. The other day, I had a good friend say something that I felt like summarized what a lot of people have been thinking but haven't been saying out loud. And so keep in mind, my friend's a great, godly man, good dad, good husband, loves Jesus. But the other day, he looked at me and he said, Phil, I need a vacation from my family. Can anybody relate to that statement? Anybody? I feel like a lot of us have been thinking that, but we didn't know how to say it so succinctly. And, and I think what he's getting at is, see if you can relate to this storyline. Somewhere in the beginning of 2020, around March, when the world started falling apart, we all went through a little bit of grief and, and a lot of shock. And then when we got used to the new routine, a lot of us made this goal, which was, this is going to be the year that I'm going to reconnect with my family. I, I would never have asked for this year to happen. I would never have asked for everything to shut down. But because of it, I'm going to reconnect with my kids. I'm going to reconnect with my brothers and sisters. I'm going to make the effort for my parents, for my grandparents, for my, my grandkids. I'm, I'm going to rekindle the romance in my marriage. I'm, I'm going to build that relationship back with my children that I always thought I wanted, but I knew it wasn't there. And so I'm really going to make this effort. And a lot of us did. And then about a thousand hours later of being at home together, a lot of us have experienced some ups and some downs of the sheer amount of time of being together. In fact, I, I wrote down five things that, that we've learned this year about family. Number one is this, increase in time leads to increase in arguing. Number two, the pandemic does not minim minimize dysfunctional behaviors. It actually does the opposite. It magnifies them. So meaning if, if you were already a little bitter or a little sarcastic or a little passive aggressive towards somebody else in your family and you thought that just being at home a lot this year would fix that, it, it probably didn't. It probably made it worse. A third thing that we've learned, it is really easy to give your family your second best. Has anybody ever thought how odd that is that we, most of us would like, we would give a better version of ourselves to a stranger than we would our father or our mother or our husband or wife or kids. It's so easy to give your second best to the people at home. Number four, we've learned that the issues which are dividing our country, for many of us, are also dividing our families. There's a lot of differences of opinion, even in our own living rooms. A fifth thing we've learned is our common ground Maybe it wasn't as common as we thought. Like, like you might be a parent out there thinking, well, when this all started, I thought I was going to go home and, and really make the most of this time with my kids, and we were going to have all these things to do together, and we had all these common interests. And then again, a few weeks turns into a few months, and you realize, oh, we don't really care about the same things. I have my hobbies and interests. They have their hobbies and interests. And so for the most part, you might have found yourselves in opposite sides of the house, each on your own device with very little connection. This has become the reality for a whole lot of people. And so maybe you didn't say it out loud the way my friend did, but maybe you can at least relate to the sentiment. Some of us need, need a vacation, or we feel like we need a vacation from the people that we love the most. So we're in this series. It's called Reimagine. And the idea behind it is we're, we're not going to go backwards. You can't really go back to 10, 11 months ago to the way the world was. But I do think there's a way forwards. I don't think that we can just live through the pandemic. I think we have to learn from it. 
And, and don't you want to be the kind of person that when this is all over, you can say, you know what, I, I'm better for it. Like I have a stronger faith. I've got better relationships with my family. I've got stronger friendships. I, I'm better at my finances. I'm, I'm wiser in the way I handle difficult circumstances. I'm wiser in the way I handle racial tension in the country. I'm more humble than I've ever been. Like, like don't you want to get to the end of this pandemic and not have just lived through it, but have learned from it. And so what I want to talk about today is how, how, might, how might we reimagine family? Because family is universal. Even if you're single listening to this message, you've got parents, you've probably got siblings, or maybe you have a roommate. Like, all of us have people that we interact with all the time, and those are the precise people that we need to focus on arguably the most because they have such radical impact on our lives. In fact, uh, isn't it fascinating how your family has the potential for like really, really great good or really, really great harm? Think about it. When the people you're closest to, when it's really healthy, it can be the source of this immense reservoir of joy. But when the people you are closest to, when you have dysfunctional relationships with them, that becomes the greatest source of pain and hurt and anxiety in your life. So family matters. And so I want to spend a, a few minutes talking about how we might reimagine our family life, our home life. Uh, last week we hopped into a really great story in the Old Testament, the story of Joseph. We're going to spend another week in that narrative because it's such an interesting story. I mean, think about it. The, the book of Genesis is a pretty important book. One-fourth of the entire book of Genesis is the story of Joseph. So Joseph has, has more words and paragraphs devoted to him than does Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Joseph's got more than Adam or Eve. Like this this story is really, really important to the book of Genesis, and so I want to hop into it once again. So, so last week we talked about how Joseph went through a lot of misfortune, but at every turn, he number one, he didn't give up on God, but he also didn't give up on people. And so we talked last week about the importance of relationships and the importance of friendships in, in your life. This week I want to focus on Joseph's family life, and so I want to, I want to talk about two scenes. And what I'd like you to do is you play the role of counselor, even though most of you are not trained therapists, and you, you tell me or you think about it what you think would be the, the healthiest response in these situations. Scene number one, Joseph, he's the youngest brother, he has a dream. In his dream, his older brothers are bowing down to him. So Joseph's a smidge narcissistic. And so he wakes up from this dream, and then he does something which I would call not wise, and he tells his older brothers about the dream. And they obviously are not very happy about this. Now, you kind of think to yourself, what would be a healthy way to handle this? Maybe it'd be something like the older brother saying, hey, hey Joseph, we understand that you felt like you needed to tell us this dream, but you need to know that we felt really hurt by that, we felt offended by that, and so can you tell us a little bit more about why you felt the need to, to talk about this dream in which we would bow down to you. Well, that'd be healthy. Just expressing how they feel, facilitating dialogue. If you know the story, that's not exactly what happened. 
Here's how the brothers handle their anger. Practical action step number one, assassination attempt. Try to kill Joseph. A practical application step number two, they force Joseph into human slave trafficking. They just, they just sell him. I'm telling you, these guys are not emotionally developed people. You know, I, I'm a younger brother, and so I actually got to hang out with my brother yesterday. When I was growing up, I did a lot of annoying things to my older brother, David, but not one time did he say, Philip, I am so annoyed with you, I'm going to export you to Egypt. Never said that. And so these people are, they're not that emotionally developed. That's scene one. Here's scene two. This is the next time they meet. So, so years pass by. Joseph's life, Joseph's life does a little bit of a downturn, goes into slavery, goes into prison, but then it goes on a really big upturn. And because of the providence of God, Joseph goes through all these good things, and, and he gets promoted to the second-in-command of Egypt. And he's trying to get the whole world through this global famine. So Joseph is mighty, he's powerful, his life is going really well. The brothers' life, their life goes generally down. So they go home, they start farming with dad, things aren't going well financially. We learn in, G in Genesis 42 that the brothers actually feel really guilty for selling Joseph, like it's just this burden that they're carrying on their shoulders. So they're not doing that great, the food's running out, and so it gets so bad that the brothers go to Egypt to get food so they won't starve to death. Well, it turns out when they get to Egypt that the person they meet to get them food is their brother Joseph. Now the older brothers look at Joseph and they don't know who he is because he's decked out in the Egyptian garb and probably he's got makeup on because that's what Egyptians did. So they don't recognize Joseph. But Joseph does recognize his brothers because they look about the same. Now again, I'll ask you to think about this. What would be a healthy way to handle this pretty big family problem? Well, you might say it might be a healthy thing for Joseph to say, hey guys, I gotta be honest. I'm Joseph. You tried to kill me. I'm still pretty upset about it. But you know, God has really done some good with this, and he, he's made a lot of good things happen. And so we're going to need to talk through this, and I'm, I'm trying to work on forgiving you, but, but I just need you to know I'm Joseph, and that's how I feel. Be pretty healthy, right? Well, again, if you know the story, that's not at all what happened. But let me just read you uh, parts of Genesis 42. Joseph looks at the brothers and, and starts off with this line, three words. You are spies. Isn't that a great way to start this conversation off? Then he says, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. So Joseph's totally messing with them. Like he doesn't want them to know he's Joseph, and he wants to just absolutely mess with their heads. So he claims that they're spies. He says, you're coming to rob us of our food. Well, at this point, you think, well, maybe, like, at some point, Joseph has to say, just kidding, guys, I'm Joseph. He doesn't do that. He puts his brothers in jail for three days. Quite the practical joke. Then he gets the brothers out of jail. And then, again, as we're reading this, we think, okay, Joseph, at some point, you got to say, guys, just kidding. After three days of jail, Joseph brings the brothers out. He doesn't say, just kidding. The next thing he does is he frames them for a crime they didn't commit. Like, he, he just keeps going with this. He takes, he takes his own cup which we might think is just a cup. But in that world, it's like a really, really big deal. It's an expensive cup, and it, it signified his authority as king. So he takes his own cup, sticks it in their bag. They don't know it. They leave. Then he sends the ancient police after them to catch them with the cup that they didn't even put in the bag. So in other words, Joseph makes them bank robbers without them knowing it, and then he arrests them 
for being bank robbers. So again, you talk about dysfunction, like, wow, this is all one family. So let's pause here. I want to summarize all the things we've talked about. Can, uh, can you just imagine if this family went to therapy? This is what the therapist would have written down after the first few sessions. Here we go. Here's the issues. Narcissism, attempted murder, family secrets, long-term guilt, deception, lying, manipulation, framed crimes, family imprisonment, deep-seated hate. Okay, I got to pause here. I'm going to make a point about families in just a minute, but I have to take a tangent here. I just have to pause and say, aren't you grateful that these are the kind of people in the Bible? Like, can somebody say amen? Like, this is a good thing that these people are in the Bible because these turn out to be the people that God uses to further his plans in the world. Like, this is Abraham's great-grandkids. These are the, the ancestors of, of Jesus Christ. And so I, I say this just to say, if, you know, for anybody that says, well, I'm not good enough for the Christian faith, I'm not smart enough, I'm not righteous enough to, to be part of God's family and God's will and God's kingdom, of course you're not. Like, like read your Bible. Nobody is. It is a testament to the faithfulness of God that he would use broken, messed up, fragmented people like us to carry out his plan. Nobody deserves to be part of God's family. But he's so good and he's so holy that he takes absolutely dysfunctional people and he says, I want you on my team. So you need to know, especially those of you either at home or in the parking lot that are sitting here thinking, man, I just don't know if, I, if I'm good enough for this Christian thing. You're not good enough, but God is good enough. And he wants you. I mean, is your life really more dysfunctional than Joseph's family? Of course not. And if Joseph and his brothers get to be part of God's story, guys, you and I get to be part of his story too. Now, I want to get to the part of the story that, that I think can be really helpful for us in our family lives. And so here's the final scene I want to read to you. This is where Joseph finally admits, hey, I'm your brother. This is the big reveal. Uh, so here we go. Uh, Genesis 42. Then Joseph could hold it no longer uh, to himself before all, all his attendants. So he cried out, have everybody leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Skipping down to verse 14, then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him, weeping, and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. Now, there's something really important in that scene, and I will say this, it's not the most important part of the story. Like I said last week, the, the main point of Joseph is, is about the faithfulness of God. But there is something really, really small in this story which I think can be a really, really big deal for your family and for my family. So I want you to pay attention to something. If you'll notice the end of that scene, the very final few words are, the brothers talked with him. Well, that's what we've been wanting the whole time. We've been wanting this, this moment of reconciliation where people are honest and they start talking about the pain and they start working through it. That's what happens at the end of that scene, but it, that's not what happened at the beginning. If you back up, I'm going to read a few of these verses again and, and try to put these dots together as to why this is so important. 
Here's what happens earlier on. Joseph says in verse 4, come close to me. Then in verse 14, it says, Joseph throws his arms around his brothers. And in verse 15, he kisses his brothers and weeps over them. So all of those things happen before they worked out the issue. So here's the principle. And I think for some of you, if you practice this principle, it's going to be an absolute game changer in your family lives. And it's so simple. Here's the principle. Connect before you solve. Everybody say that with me. Connect before you solve. Say it again. Connect before you solve. Okay, think about this. Did Joseph and his brothers finally get to the point where they're working towards resolution? Actually, it does happen. If you read the full text, Joseph talks about, hey, guys, that is really hurtful what you did to me. But God, God's been working on my heart, and, and the brothers feel really bad about it. So they start having the right conversation, but that's not the first thing that happened. The first thing that happened is they connected. There was hugs. They wept together. They came close together. And, and I would argue that the connection actually facilitated the solution. The connection came first. And this is such an important principle for our families because I, I don't know what it is, but some of us get so used to being problem solvers and we're so good at solving problems that sometimes we go into our family context and think, well, this is a problem to be worked out. No, it's not. There's a big difference here. People are not problems. People are people. Like, there's a difference between a, a sputtering engine and an angry wife. Even though both can blow gaskets, there is a difference there. There's a difference between a sputtering engine and an angry wife because the engine is a problem that needs a solution, but the wife is a person that needs a connection. And so sometimes we come into our family systems and think, well, this is a problem, and I have to come up with a logical solution to solve the problem. These are people, and people first need to connect. You connect before you solve. So let's see how this plays out in some practical examples. Let's say uh, you're a parent, and you've got a teenager, a 15-year-old girl. She comes home one day, and she's just super angry. Come to find out later that that she, she got a bad grade on a test and one of her good friends said something to her and it really hurt her feelings. So she comes home and at first she's just mad. She's not saying anything. She wants to be by herself. And you as a parent, you're like, what's going on? And then later in the evening, she finally comes out and she just loses it. And she starts yelling, and my life's horrible. I can't believe I made this grade. My friend's a jerk. My teacher's a jerk. I hate my life. And you're on the couch thinking, I, I don't know what to do. And then... You think, well, she's clearly having a problem. She must need a solution. And so you come back with, well, honey, you know, when I was 15, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I read some books once on blah, 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 blah. You know what she's going to hear? She's going to hear blah, 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 blah. Because she actually doesn't need a solution in the moment. She needs connection. What she really needs is someone to give her a hug and someone to say, man, I'm so sorry that happened. It's really hard to be a teenager right now. She needs someone to to get some popcorn for her and turn a movie on. She needs connection. And then once she gets that connection, then she's a little more open towards solution, but the connection has to come first. Well, let's go with the marriage example. Let's, uh, I, I would actually guess right now, everybody in the parking lot that, that's married, my guess is you have some disagreement with your spouse right now. Probably everybody. Maybe, maybe you disagree about a certain way you're spending money. Maybe you disagree about a certain way you're raising your kids. Um, maybe you disagree about political issues going on right now in the country. Like, there's probably disagreement right now at home between spouses. And my, here's the thing. I, my guess is both parties want to solve the problem. Like, 
because you want to solve the problem. But most likely what's happening for some of you is you get locked into the same patterns of conversation where a husband says this and then the wife responds this way and then the husband responds this way and it's the same conversation day after day after day and you just end the conversation just looking at each other thinking, I, I don't know what we're supposed to do about this. Well, maybe you need to stop talking about it. Like maybe the best thing to do is just to connect, to find something you actually like doing together and, and just to do that together. And now some of you say, well, Phil, are you just saying we should be in denial? Should we just never talk about our problems? Should we just assume that, that we can just move on with a problem that's not resolved? And I would actually say, yeah, it is possible to be in a healthy relationship with somebody else and not have every single issue resolved. In fact, there's some great research to back this up. The, the leading thinker in, in uh, marriage and family therapy PP is a guy named uh, John Gottman. He's done research for decades, decades and decades and decades of uh, research on marriage. The most interesting study he ever did was this. He, towards the end of his career, he figured out how to predict if couples would stay married or get divorced. He could meet with a couple one time and predict with 95% accuracy whether that couple would stay together. Now here's, he, he revealed how he did this. As he spent time with the couple, he would simply watch for their positive interactions and their negative interactions. So he would pay attention to positive things like listening, asking questions, empathy, healthy touch, laughing together, because humor is a really, really healthy thing. But then he would, he would also pay attention to the negative interactions so being, being bitter, being defensive, not listening to the other, attacking the other without really helpful knowledge. And here's what he concluded. If there was a five to one ratio of positive interactions versus negative interactions, the couple would stay together, five to one. And the most remarkable thing about the study that, that he did was based on all this research is that the couples that stayed together didn't have all their problems resolved. What happened to those couples is that there were so many positive things happening in their marriage that they were able to get by, even with the few negative things that happened. In other words, let me just say it this way. When your joy is plentiful, your problems are manageable. When your joy is plentiful, your problems are manageable. So if you spend all day long working on the same problems, you're probably going to be really sad and, and grumpy and irritated with each other. But if you spend most of your time just connecting, this is who we are, we're just going to hang out, we're going to find our common interests, we're going to create joy together, then what happens is those little times where you disagree, yeah, they're there, but at the end of the day, they don't matter quite as much because you spent so much time learning how to connect. Guys, I'm telling you, don't neglect, neglect your family. Like, here in a few months when this whole season's over, don't you want your story to be like this? I would never want this pandemic to happen again, but I'm so thankful that God was able to use the pandemic to create this space for me to have a better relationship with my mom and my dad and my husband and wife and brothers and sisters and kids than I ever have. Don't you want that to be your story? You can have that story, but you got to connect. So here's your homework. This is going to be the hardest homework I've ever given you as your preacher. Here it is. Do something you love with someone you love. I know. It's going to be really, really challenging. But that's your homework. It's simple. Do something you love with someone that you love. And connect. Speaking of connection, final thing I'll say is this. A little uh, tangent to end. 
for about two months, I've had something on my heart, specifically as your, your preacher. The reason I got into ministry many, many years ago was because I loved people and I loved God. And that those two reasons continue to be forefront of my own heart. But as this pandemic has worn on, one of the things that has been on my heart is that I want to be available to pray with you. One of the things that's been really, really helpful in my own life is I've always had someone to pray with. And so today I'm actually launching a new program. It has a really original title. It's called Pray with the Preacher. And so in just a few hours, you're actually going to get an email with a few more details. And there's going to be a link on that email. And so what I'm asking you to do is just click on that link. And then they'll ask you a few questions like where you want to meet, inside, outside, or Zoom. When do you want to meet? Questions like that. Uh, and then we'll get together and we'll just just pray. And so this is really for anybody in, the, in, the, in our church family. Maybe you've always heard me preach and thought, man, I'd sure like to sit down with Phil, but he must be busy and he doesn't even know who I am. I'd love to sit down and talk with you, listen to you, uh, pray with you. So watch for that email today. And just, just in a few clicks, uh, you can get on my calendar and and hopefully soon we can sit down and, and just talk and, and pray together. So speaking of that, let's, let's end this part of the service in a prayer. Father, we're so thankful for our church family. And Father, we're thankful for our own families at home, too. And, but we're, we're very aware, Father, that the home can be really hard. The home is a place of love, but it's also a place of misunderstanding. It's a place where we can have deep wounds, where we can have fear. It can be a place of arguing. And so, uh, Father, we pray that you would reign in our hearts, but also in our homes. Father, give us some space this week to connect, to do things that we really enjoy, uh, so that we can just be closer, Father. Uh, may your kingdom come and your will be done in our living rooms, in our homes, as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.